are listening to a sermon from the pulpit of Redeemer Church, a PCA congregation in Hudson, Ohio. For more information, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org. Well, tonight, if you would, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Revelation. As we continue our exposition, and tonight we're looking at chapter 7 together, verses 1 through 8, and you'll find this on page 1031 of the Pew Bible. Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. Hear the word of God. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth, that no wind might blow on earth or sea or against any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the rising of the sun with the seal of the living God. And he called with a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the earth and sea, saying, Do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000, sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. 12,000 from the tribe of Judah were sealed. 12,000 from the tribe of Reuben. 12,000 from the tribe of Gad. 12,000 from the tribe of Asher. 12,000 from the tribe of Naphtali. 12,000 from the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 from the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 from the tribe of Levi, 12,000 from the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 from the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 from the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 from the tribe of Benjamin were sealed. Last time we were together, we learned that there are going to be cosmic upheavals and universal fear on earth in the future. God revealed to us a symbolic picture of the great and awesome day of the Lord. The earth will quake and the sun will blacken and the moon will redden and the stars will fall and the sky will crumple like a piece of paper. Seemingly immovable and unchanging mountains and islands will be easily removed out of their places. And all people, the entire godless world, will be seized with fear and long for death. And in Revelation 6, it says, They will cry out, saying, The great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? And it is in answer to that question, who can stand, that this text gives us an answer. How do Christians stand amid the severest tribulations on earth? How do they persevere? Because believers are not exempt from suffering, as you know. Christians have to endure hard trials, but they persevere, or better yet, they are preserved, and they're sealed for the day of redemption. And God even says there will be saints who come out of the great tribulation, verse 14. So in his vision, John sees four angels at four corners holding four winds, and four is one of those numbers in the Bible that carries great significance. 
It has to do with fullness and completion or the totality of something. Four corners, as you know, is a familiar phrase denoting the entirety of the earth. Generally, winds are considered destructive forces, although even the Holy Spirit is likened to a wind. But in Jeremiah 49, it says that I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four corners of heaven, and I will scatter them to all those winds, and there shall be no nation to which those driven out of Elam shall not come. Destructive forces. And John sees these four winds as harmful and having the same kind of effect as the four horsemen that we looked at earlier. So it is said that these four winds are the winds of woe, bringing destruction. The fact that they must be restrained by the angels points to the kind of devastation that they can leave behind. They break branches, they blast fruits, they uproot trees throughout the entire earth, and from every direction they bear down and leave desolation in their wake. The four winds. But let's not forget that these winds are in subjection to the Lord and under his complete control. By his divine command, these four winds at the four corners are restrained. His angels keep them from wreaking total havoc upon the inhabited world. As one commentator put it, every moment on the earth is made to serve the redeeming purpose of God for mankind. The four winds from the four corners of the earth cannot blow and vent their rage as they like, but only as they're made to serve the church of Jesus Christ. Well, then the apostle John sees another angel ascending from the rising of the sun, and this angel rises from the east, perhaps because Jerusalem is east of Patmos, where John is seeing this vision. And geographically speaking, the east is where the sun's light originates. But more important, that's where the redemption of the elect is accomplished. And this messenger is a herald of grace who, we're told, carries the seal of the living God. And people wonder, what exactly is the seal of which John is referring? Well, I think Paul helps us in Ephesians 1 when he puts it this way. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance. The Holy Spirit. And you know something? No one else bears the seal of the living God. That is to say, nobody else has the authority to give the Holy Spirit but Christ himself. He is the guarantee of our salvation. And so what we're seeing here is Christ, the great angel of the covenant, who alone can preserve the elect. I think we find evidence for this in the prophecy of Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, when he says this, The sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. Additional evidence is gleaned from the prediction of the prophecy of Malachi when he says this, You who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. It's talking about Christ. And so we see that Christ's heavenly radiance shines upon the church to give her light and joy and salvation. Here is the Lord Jesus giving direction to the four angels at the four corners of the earth. He called with a loud voice to the four angels who'd been given power to harm the earth and sea. Don't harm the earth. Don't harm the sea or the trees until we've sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. And do you see? 
By his supreme authority, he restrains the winds in service to his kingdom. And these woes must be contained as long as necessary so that he can seal the saints. And hence we learn that Christ protects them and he guards their faith. Their salvation is secure, whoever these people are. No one can snatch them out of his hands. Despite their trials and their sufferings and their persecutions, they'll not be hurt and they'll not be lost. And then John tells us that he heard distinctly the number of those to whom he's referring. I heard the number of the sealed, 144,000 sealed from every tribe of the sons of Israel. Now, this particular verse has been grossly misinterpreted largely because of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They claim that this is the limit, 144,000 of those who will reign in heaven and experience eternal life. That's it. 144,000. That's why they labor so hard walking from door to door because they want to be there. But if that were the case, then it would be easy to calculate the redeemed, wouldn't it? 144,000. But we just got done reading in verse 9. I looked and behold a great multitude that no one can number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes. No, what this number, 144,000, denotes is both the fullness and the perfection of the church of Jesus Christ. It's symbolic, like almost every other number in the book of Revelation. You might know that 12 is one of those significant biblical numbers. The New Jerusalem has 12 gates with 12 angels, the names of 12 tribes and 12 foundations. It's a biblical number. And 144,000 is the square of 12 times the cube of 10. 12 times 12 times 10 times 10 times 10. And in that symbolic way, the perfect total of God's elect people is to be indicated. The wall of the celestial city is 144 cubits by human measurement. Why? Because it's full and it's complete. And so the references to the 12 tribes here is a figurative way of identifying the church as the true Israel. Or the Christian is the true Jew, according to Romans 2, and the church is the Israel of God, according to Galatians 6. So the 144,000 simply refers to the totality of Christ's church sealed for redemption, you and me and every other Christian. Revelation 14 says these have been redeemed from mankind as the first fruits for God and the Lamb. So what we're seeing here is that no true Christian will ever suffer the harmful effects of these coming judgments doesn't mean that believers will be raptured from. It means that they'll be preserved through these judgments. And this sealing is what enables the Christian to stand and to remain loyal to Christ. In view of the coming trials and tribulations, I think that's a precious promise. John sees here spiritual Israel marked out because without the seal, neither you nor me would remain true. And those who are sealed are believers only. Unbelievers are never sealed. 
Indeed, the Spirit's sealing is a gospel blessing. It's not something of ordinary providence. It is a rich covenantal benefit enjoyed only by those who trust in Christ. Ephesians 1, he says, When you heard the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Sealed. And among ancient peoples, the seal performed at least four functions. Designation, declaration, authentication, and authorization. Let's consider those. Designation. A seal was used to mark and identify one's personal possessions. Kind of like a brand on a cattle. Ezekiel 9, the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. He designates them. That's a seal. Number two, declaration. It's a solemn pledge of one's faith in and devotion to another. John 3, whoever receives his testimony sets his seal to this, that God is true. You declare your devotion to him by the seal. Number three, authentication. It confirms that the things in question are genuine. 1 Kings 21, Jezebel wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal, authenticating. Fourth, authorization. It grants authority and gives commission and delegates power. You might remember the story in Esther. When Mordecai rises to power, and it says, You may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Authorization. So in all four ways, the Christian is sealed by the Holy Spirit, who is both the seal and the sealer. He designates you a Christian by dwelling in your heart and transforming your life. He identifies you as genuine. He declares you and I children by enabling us to cry out to God, Abba, Father. He authenticates us as heirs of the covenant by confirming our adoption through grace. Our standards teach us that the Spirit enables us to discern in ourselves those graces to which the promises of life are made. You see the grace at work. You're sealed. And finally, the Spirit authorizes us by deepening God's grace in our hearts and strengthening our faith in the soul. Isn't that a wonderful work? He performs this by applying the death and the resurrection of Christ unto us, and he creates this certainty of one's acceptance in Christ and adoption into God's family. <clears throat> and we grow in assurance with respect to the right and title to eternal life. Of course, this sealing work of the Holy Spirit, how marvelous it is, is not the same at all times, nor in all people. Sometimes his work of sealing is, is sudden, very sudden. A person is deeply sealed in conversion. The Apostle Paul. And grace, grace makes such an impression that's so deep and so profound that it is never effaced. Paul says in Ephesians 4, Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. He left such an indelible mark upon those Ephesians that they were sure it happened. 
And in that moment, the soul is brought to full assurance of faith and salvation. It is sudden. Recall the Gadarene demoniac. Do you remember that story? He comes out of the tombs and Jesus delivers him, casts out the demons. And God impresses upon his soul with the good news, this idea that he belonged to God. And then he begged his Lord, Jesus, that I can follow you. And Jesus says to him, return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And I think what that does is imply that the gathering demoniac was so assured of his full pardon, as well as his fatherly welcome, that he went and evangelized the whole diaspora. And with that assurance comes the foretaste of inexpressible heavenly joy. It's sudden. But most times, I think the Spirit's work of sealing is gradual. It occurs over a long time. Through the years, step by step, in the school of spiritual experience, the soul is sealed. It occurs as we grow in knowledge both of ourselves and of the Lord Jesus. The views of my own sin deepen. There's a deep, searching, painful process of sanctification. And also the discoveries of Christ's love broaden. My heart begins to be enlarged and my soul is enriched week after week as I attend the ordinances of Christ. And we experience this daily repentance and the increase of faith, hope, and love. It's gradual. And hence, the Spirit's work in that case takes place in stages. It's experienced in different degrees. At first, the impression of the seal is so faint that it might hardly be noticeable. I'm thinking now of covenant children. You can't remember a time you didn't know Jesus. I've heard that countless times in our interviews for membership. And yet over time, in the use of ordinances, the impression made by grace deepens. And I think this is one of the great designs of the sacraments. The Spirit uses them to infuse grace into the soul. And they're both signs, and we're taught that they're seals of the covenant. And by the sacraments rightly used, the Spirit makes His impression, and the sanctifying influence of His grace becomes noticeable. And hence... Whether sealing is sudden or gradual, God's grace prevails and the soul is saved. Because even a mustard seed of faith, though it's weak, is still saving faith in the strong Savior. You know something? God's grace loses nothing of its greatness and its glory simply because faith is small. One Puritan said, the father doesn't disown his infant as his child because it's the smallest and the feeblest of his family. The baby belongs to him. Anyone who touches that child touches the apple of his eye. And so grace is great regardless of how small or feeble it might be at the time. It grows. As the psalmist tells us, they go from strength to strength. Each one appears before God in Zion. But you know something? The sealing impress of the Holy Spirit is most deep when the sense of adoption is most strong. 
Romans 8, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And at that point, we realize that we're not only forgiven sinners, but we're fellow heirs with Christ. And over time, our understanding of this glorious status and privilege begins to deepen, widen, become more profound, See what kind of love the Father's given to us, that we should be called children of God, says the Apostle John. And our worship, it becomes more permeated with the fragrance of sonship. And the whole frame of our souls becomes more filial and submissive. Our language and prayer is increasingly infused with the awareness that he is our Father and we are his children. There's no legal bondage. There's no servile fear. There's no slavish groans. There's no cautious hesitation. Like the prodigal returning home, the father runs down and the son runs too and they embrace. And the Holy Spirit draws with cords of love and we approach the throne and we say, Our Father, who art in heaven. And I have to add this, that oftentimes this impression This ceiling is deepened most during periods of intense affliction. Octavius Winslow put it this way, The furnace works wonders for a believer. Oh, that he should ever wish to be exempt from it. He's talking about the furnace of affliction. Because where there is true faith, the Father will test it, And he will refine it like silver. Psalm 11 verse 5 says, The Lord tests the righteous. W.J. Stacy. He says, Sorrows may fall thick around them at times. Trials grievous to be borne and diverse temptations may come upon them. But all these things tend only to strengthen faith in them that are saved. There are so few of us who would really love and serve God if we met with no trials in life that in his great mercy God sends these things first upon one and then upon another amongst us and it's out of love to us that he does so. God does this in part so that we know ourselves and see grace at work. It's in the furnace of affliction that Christians receive some of the choicest blessings. And those of you who suffer or are suffering know exactly what I'm talking about. I think to close, let me just say that this Holy Spirit's work of sealing believers that's mentioned in this text is designed to serve six aims. One, his sealing work stabilizes and strengthens the believing soul. You and I are so prone to spiritual instability and weakness Our spiritual vigor fades so easily that the Bible exhorts us to diligence and attentiveness and steadfastness. Work out your salvation. And while our spirits may be willing, our flesh remains extremely weak. And apart from the Holy Spirit, the strongest resolves will be so easily foiled. And so we sing, Oh, to grace how great a debtor daily. I'm constrained to be. Let that grace now like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. 
O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. You see, the Spirit must seal with an extra measure of his grace to support our spiritual vigor. That's use number one. Number two, his sealing work gives permanence to our desire for salvation. It awakens the conscience and it arouses this filial fear and it plants the desire in the heart. And this is how he makes us willing in the day of God's power to trust in Christ. I couldn't do this on my own. Neither could you. But God never saves us against our will. He does it through giving us the desire. We're told by the psalmist, delight yourself in the Lord. Why? He'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll put those holy desires in your heart. And this is why Satan tries to misguide the will and to seduce the affections. He attempts to corrupt the desire and to misdirect the believer's focus. Every day, he's at work. And so the Spirit stimulates the desire throughout our lives so that we continue the pursuit of the kingdom. That's number two. Number three, his sealing work establishes our sense of spiritual inadequacy. And that's a good thing. You know something, that initial conviction of sin and that sense of shame that were so vital to our conversion? Well, the law must do its work, driving the soul so that it sees the need of a Savior every single day. And in the gospel, we gain this sense of relief as well as a deeper intuition of our sin. Look at the Apostle Paul. He's writing to Timothy at the end of his life. How many churches has he planted? How many countries has he visited? How many inspired letters has he written? And yet this is what he says. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. And so we see here we become seasoned in the sensing of sin, and that transforms our soul. We experience weightier repentance deeper humility, stronger clinging to Christ. That's number three. Number four, his sealing work produces in the soul a stronger conviction of truth. In other words, the great doctrines of Christianity are embraced with more vigor. As the sealing process goes on, you hold on to them more strongly. Being sealed, we sense more experientially the realities of the covenant of God. Romans 8, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ. And the weight of God's truth impresses the seasoned heart with exhilarating joy. Vaughn says in trials of faith which are really severe, when the providences of God seem to deny his words, how precious then would be the sealing of the promises in our hearts. The promises are often fulfilled when they seem for a time to be denied. That's number four. Number five, his sealing work confirms the evidence of conversion in the heart. You know, occasionally, proofs of grace in our lives are clearly evident and they're full of comfort. We can see in our daily activities marks of the Spirit's indwelling presence. Did I say that? Where did that come from? I never would have said that 10 years ago. But sometimes 
Such proofs are only dim flickers in our lives, and they're hardly noticeable. And that's when we should reflect upon our history with God. Remember what he's done in the past. And we reapply Christ to our souls by faith, just as we did at the first. And the Spirit's sealing enables us to do it through our lives with fresh appreciation. The evidence of conversion. That's number five. And then finally, his sealing work solidifies the hope of heaven in the Christian. And this should be happening in all of us. But in most, it's only a faint glimmer, isn't it? How often do we think about heaven in our daily activities? It often exerts such a minimal influence that for practical purposes, it's really absent. But over time, through trials, the Holy Spirit makes this hope more firm and more tangible to our souls. And as you begin to realize your mortality more and more, you realize that hope of heaven is precious. Proverbs 10, 28, the hope of the righteous brings joy. It brings great comfort. It produces gladness. It evokes sincere gratitude. And it is one of the great fruits of the sealing of the Holy Spirit. And so I close with the words of the Apostle Paul who said, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information or to connect with us, visit us at RedeemerOhio.org.